Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Everybody has a theological paradigm. And what's a theological paradigm? It's a worldview. It's a framework by which you understand God and the world that you live in. You, along with everybody else in the world, have a framework of assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions that, you, that are used to interpret what you know about God, or what you know about yourself, and what you know about God's relationship to you and to the world he created. As I said, everybody has a theological paradigm. Even the atheist has a theological paradigm. The assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions of the atheist paradigm are a lot different than the assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions of the Christian's paradigm, but both of them are using their their perspective paradigms to arrive at a, a perspective of God themselves in the world that they live in. Theological paradigms are, are, are supposed to be fluid. What I mean by this is that you're always supposed to be improving upon the assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions that make up your paradigm. Whenever you learn some new truth, you'll, you need to fit that truth within your paradigm. And sometimes that new truth fits very well into your paradigm. It just falls right into place and it supports everything else that's in your paradigm. And when this happens, it validates the assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions that are part of your paradigm. But other times, the new truth that you learn does not fit into your paradigm. It has the effect of challenging some of the assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions that are in your paradigm, challenging whether they are entirely accurate. Because if they are accurate, then you would not have any trouble fitting that new truth into your paradigm. So when conflict or tension or or contradictions appear within your paradigm, you need to assess which of your assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions need to be improved. And when when you do this in light of God's revealed truth, you improve your entire theological paradigm. You expand your paradigm. It becomes more, a more accurate framework through which you interpret what you know about God, what you know about yourself, and what you know about God's relationship to you and the world he created. But this is not as easy as it sounds. Knowing which of your assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions need to be improved can be a difficult job. This requires work. It requires studying God's word. It requires us to identify principles from God's word and then to make those principles part of our theological paradigm. That's challenging. But sometimes the greatest challenge to improving our our theological paradigm is our willingness to be honest with ourselves. Let me explain. When we're confronted by a truth that doesn't fit into our paradigm, we understand that some of our assumptions, doctrines, theories, or opinions need to be modified in order to accommodate that truth. 
But we also understand that modifying certain parts of our paradigm will have additional implications that may, we may not be willing to face. Additional implications that might push us into some uncomfortable situations. So there's a temptation to not be honest with ourselves. Instead of acknowledging the need to make the necessary improvement to our paradigm, we might try to reject the truth that's exposing the weakness in our paradigm. Or we might try to discredit the truth that's exposing the weakness in our paradigm. Or we might try to explain it away in some other manner so it doesn't have the impact on our paradigm that we don't want it to have. Why do we do this? Because we don't want to deal with the implications of changing one or more of the assumptions, doctrines, theories, or opinions. Those implications are, 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 are too uncomfortable for us or create some type of difficulty we don't want to deal with. For example, in Acts 7, when Stephen recounted to the Jews about how their forefathers had persecuted the prophets of God and rebelled against the Lord, he concluded his speech by telling those Jews that they were doing the exact same thing. You always resist the Holy Spirit, Stephen asserted in verse 53. As your fathers did, so do you. Verse 54 says that when the Jews heard Stephen's indictment, that they were cut to the heart. Literally, verse 54 says that they were cut in two. The Jews knew that Stephen had spoken truthfully about them because his indictment pierced them to their hearts, making their sinful deeds and attitudes known to them. So what did the Jews do with this truth? Did they fit it in? How, it, it, it did not fit into their theological paradigm. The truth that Stephen had spoken revealed tension and contradiction within their theological paradigm. So they had to do something with this truth. So did they modify their assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions to accommodate the truth that had just cut them to their heart? Or did they keep their theological paradigm intact by rejecting the truth through some form of intellectual or spiritual dishonesty? Acts 7.57 says they chose the latter. They stopped their ears so they could no longer hear what Stephen was saying and they rushed him and stoned him to death. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be dishonest with ourselves. The Jews did not want to modify their paradigm because that would be too uncomfortable for them. Modifying their paradigm means that they would have had to humble themselves. They would have had to admit that they were wrong. And they would have had to repent of resisting the Holy Spirit. So rather than dealing with these things, these unpleasant consequences, they unrighteously suppressed the truth that exposed the weakness in their paradigm. Brothers and sisters, the temptation to be dishonest with ourselves is a very strong temptation. It's especially strong when our pride is at stake. This is because our pride doesn't want our sin to be exposed to others. Nor does our pride want our sin to be exposed to ourselves. Our sinful pride doesn't want to admit that somebody else is right and we're wrong. 
Our sinful pride doesn't want to admit that we are fearful. Our sinful pride doesn't want to admit that we are insecure or that we are vulnerable or that we're doubting or that we're hurting or that we're anxious or that we need assistance. There are a thousand and one reasons why we might be tempted to reject an element of of truth, to suppress an element of truth, or to ignore an element of truth. When that element of truth exposes a weakness in our theological paradigm, that's personally challenging for us to deal with. Do you know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters? Have you been there? Have you experienced that temptation? Here in Habakkuk chapter one, Habakkuk is having a weakness exposed in his theological paradigm. What I want us to see in this sermon is how Habakkuk responded to this challenge to his paradigm. He responded well. He did exactly what he should have done. And as we pay close attention to the steps he took in responding to his challenge, it serves as an exemplary model for how we can respond to our challenges. To set the context of our sermon text, chapter one begins with Habakkuk groaning over the spiritual and moral depravity of the Jews who were living in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he does what all of us should do when we are groaning or when we are in a similar situation. He brings his lament to the Lord. And we can discern the nature of Habakkuk's lament from the six nouns that he uses in verses two and three. He describes the wickedness of Judah as violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering, strife, and contention. And then in verse four, Habakkuk adds to his lament by explaining how God's law has lost its power in Judah. The rulers and leaders of the southern kingdom don't enforce God's law anymore. They ignore it. So justice never goes forth, Habakkuk says. And the wicked take advantage of the righteous and the righteous have no recourse in the civil courts because only perverse judgment proceeds from the civil courts. So Habakkuk is bringing his lament to the heavenly courts. His theological paradigm led him to the understanding that God is able to accomplish the correction that was needed in Judah. So he went to the Lord. The Psalms and Proverbs had been written about 300 years before Habakkuk was having this conversation with God. So there's no doubt that the Psalms and Proverbs were um, instrumental as a source for many of the doctrines that contributed to Habakkuk's theological paradigm. And let me call your attention to three doctrines that are relevant to what Habakkuk is experiencing here in chapter one. The first has to do with God's omniscience. Habakkuk knew that the Lord was seeing everything that was happening in Judah. He could have, Habakkuk could have derived this from this doctrine from Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15, which says, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He considers all their works. So Habakkuk's theological paradigm included the understanding of God's omniscience. The second doctrine has to do with God's faithfulness to his covenant people. 
In Psalm 89, verses three and four, God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build upon your throne to all generations. So Habakkuk's theological paradigm included the knowledge that God has promised to David to establish his seed on the throne forever. And a third doctrine that was part of Habakkuk's theological paradigm has to do with God's loving correction to his covenant people. Proverbs 3.12 says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he, he delights. So when Habakkuk brought his lament to the Lord in verses two through four, these three doctrines were helping form his expectation of how God would respond. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the sons of men. So God obviously sees what's happening in Judah. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. He loves the people of Judah. And whom the Lord, uh, and, and because the Lord loves the people of Judah, um, they, are, they are his covenant people. He's not gonna turn his back on them. He has promised to establish the seed of David on a throne forever. So Habakkuk fully expected the Lord to bring fatherly correction on the people of Judah. Perhaps Habakkuk was thinking this correction would take the form of God raising up another righteous king that would bring reform to Judah like Josiah had done. Or maybe he was thinking along the lines of God bringing drought and famine on Judah like God had done with the northern kingdom of Israel. We don't know, we don't really know exactly what Habakkuk was expecting when he was asking the Lord to, to respond and bring correction to uh, Judah, but we do know what he was not expecting. He was not expecting the Lord to send the fierce and wicked Babylonians into Judah. He was not expecting the Lord to say, I'm going to send a violent world superpower into Judah. And they are going to gather captives like sand. That was a shocker for Habakkuk. And it was a shocker because uh, this revelation of God's intent didn't fit into, into Habakkuk's theological paradigm. We know this because Habakkuk's response to the Lord uh, in the sermon text reveals this to us. Uh, in his response, we see Habakkuk is struggling to understand why the Lord would allow the people of Judah to be devoured from the land. Uh, you can sense the tension Habakkuk must have been experiencing in his knowledge that God had promised to establish the seed of David on the throne forever. And Habakkuk is struggling to understand why God would use a nation so excessively wicked to devour a nation that's only partially wicked. How is that like the loving discipline of a father? God knew that this was going to be a shocker for Habakkuk to hear. He even said so back in verse 5. Before giving any of the details about what the Babylonians are going to do, the Lord said to Habakkuk, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your day which you will not believe, though it were told to you. So the Lord knew that the truth he was about to reveal to Habakkuk was going to challenge Habakkuk's theological paradigm. 
And what we're seeing in our sermon text is Habakkuk's response to having his paradigm challenged. And what I want you to notice is that Habakkuk responds righteously to this challenge. He doesn't reject the element of truth that's challenging his paradigm. He doesn't try to suppress the element of truth. He doesn't try to ignore the element of truth. Rather, he seeks correction from the Lord so that he can improve his paradigm to accommodate the difficult truth that God had just revealed to him. As we consider Habakkuk's response, we can identify four steps that he took in approaching this challenge. I submit to you that these four steps are a righteous pattern for dealing with any challenges that that we face. And all of us do face difficult challenges in our life. If you're not facing a difficult challenge right now, you soon will be. That's because all of us sin. And all of us live in a fallen world that's groaning under the curse of sin. So some of you, some of us, are challenged with difficult relationships within our family. Some of us may have to deal with an unfaithful spouse. Some of us may have to deal with rebellious children. Some of us are going to receive a serious diagnosis from our doctor. Somebody might lose their job without a notice. Somebody might experience prolonged financial troubles. Somebody might have their identity stolen and their bank account drained. And all of us, every one of us, are going to suffer the death of our loved ones. When you're challenged by a difficult development in your life, you might have trouble reconciling that with your theological paradigm, which means you'll probably be asking yourself some passionate questions. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? Doesn't he love me? Is God angry with me? Is he punishing me? Has God forgotten about me? Has he turned his back upon me? Why won't the Lord let me walk in his blessings? Why doesn't he deliver me from my pain and suffering? Why this, Lord? Why that, Lord? Habakkuk had similar questions. He found himself in a situation that he was having difficulty, trouble, understanding. So he took the steps he took to approach his challenge righteously. And let's consider how we can use these same steps for dealing righteously with our challenge. There are four steps that I've identified in our passage. The first step Habakkuk implemented is to do nothing until his emotions were under control. To do nothing until his emotions were under control. When confronted with a difficult and challenging situation, many people emote. Many people let their emotions take over and they begin to say things they ought not to say. Ecclesiastes 5.2 warns, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. A similar principle is found in the New Testament. In James 1 verses 19 through 20, it says, so then my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So whether the emotion is wrath 
or fear or hatred or bitterness. Allowing your sinful emotions to have control over you does not produce the righteousness of God. When Habakkuk approached God in verse 12, he came as a person whose emotions are under control. In other words, he was not quick to speak. He was not rash with his mouth. He didn't utter anything hastily before God. Rather, he approached the Lord in reverence and self-control. The second step Habakkuk took is to identify what he knew to be true about the nature and character of God. What he knew to be true about the nature and character of God. Look at verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk starts by acknowledging the eternal and self-existent nature of God in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? And then Habakkuk adds, my holy one. So not only is Habakkuk identifying the eternal and self-existent nature of God, he's also identifying the holy character of God. And don't miss the possessive pronouns in this first sentence. Habakkuk says, O Lord my God, my holy one. So in this first sentence, the first sentence of of verse 12, Habakkuk has already identified three doctrines from his theological uh, paradigm that he knows to be true. These are non-negotiables for Habakkuk. These are the things that Habakkuk knows to be true without a doubt. He knows that God is eternal and everlasting because it says so in Psalm 90 verse two, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Habakkuk knows that God is holy because it says so in Psalm 22, verse three. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. And Habakkuk knows that he has a relationship with the eternal and holy God. He's able to say God is his Just as David was able to say in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My shepherd. Dear friends, when you face the challenging situations in your life, start with the first step of bringing your emotions under control and then proceed to this second step where you identify what you know to be true about the nature and character of God. Why? because the nature and character of God are the foundation upon which all truth is understood. Which means organizing your thoughts upon the nature and character of God is going to guard you from straying into wild and unprofitable speculation. Are you familiar with bowling bumpers? Bowling bumpers are those metal rails that pop up along the sides of a bowling lane. And their purpose is to keep the the bowling ball from going into the gutter. Uh, When the rails are in place, uh, the bowling ball will never go into the gutter because the rails keep bouncing it back into the lane. Uh, Your knowledge of the nature and character of God functions like bowling bumpers. It keeps you out of the gutter of wild and unprofitable speculation. It keeps you from dubious and sinful speculation about what God might be doing during the challenging episodes of your life. For example, there's a scene in The Fiddler on the Roof where Tevye's horse sprains his leg 
just before the Sabbath is about to begin. And Tevye still has some milk deliveries to make, so, but obviously he doesn't have a horse to pull his cart. And so as, as Tevye is pushing his milk cart with his own energy down this dirt road, he begins to speculate about what God is doing in his life. And he says, Dear God, was, it nece- was that necessary? Did you have to make him lame just before the Sabbath? That wasn't nice. It's enough you pick on me. Bless me with five daughters, a life of poverty. That's all right. But what have you got against my horse? Really, sometimes I think when things are too quiet up there, you say to yourself, let's see what kind of mischief I could play on my friend Tevye. Now this scene is supposed to be funny, and I think we can all see an aspect of humor in it, but, it, but it really is not funny. It's not funny because the mere suggestion that God would act mischievously to break his own boredom is an affront to God's holiness. Had Tevye first identified what the scriptures say about the holy character of God, then he would have, that would have acted like like bowling bumpers. It would have kept him from straying into these wild and unprofitable and even sinful thoughts about what God might be doing in heaven. It would have kept his thoughts from falling into the gutter of sinful speculation. Knowing that God is holy prevents us from speculating that God is up to something mischievous or sinister in our lives. Knowing that God is sovereign, that he upholds all things by the power of his word, prevents you from speculating that the circumstances you're facing are outside of his control. Knowing that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, prevents you from speculating that something happened to you that took God by surprise. Knowing that God is faithful, that he will never leave you or forsake you, prevents you from speculating that he has abandoned you or turned his back on you. Knowing that God is just, that he is completely righteous in all of his judgments, prevents you from speculating that he's punishing you for the sins that Jesus has already borne the punishment for. Knowing that God is omnipotent, that he's mighty and powerful over all things, prevents you from speculating that he doesn't have the ability to help you in your time of trouble. Knowing that God is compassionate, prevents you from speculating that he doesn't care about your suffering. Knowing that God is love prevents you from speculating that you're not valuable, that you're not loved, that your life has no worth or purpose. Do you see the point that I'm making here? Do you see the value of establishing all your thoughts and contemplation upon the foundation of God's nature and and character? Habakkuk goes on to identify more truths about God's nature and character. In verse 12, he identifies the sovereignty of God. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. And he's speaking about the people of Judah here. Habakkuk is acknowledging the truth that God has sovereignly ordained for his covenant people to receive the loving correction of their heavenly father. In verse 13, Habakkuk revisits the holiness of God. Your eyes are purer than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And only after having laid the relevant truths about God's nature and character 
does Habakkuk begin to ask the why questions? The third step, therefore, is to begin asking the Lord questions about the things you're having trouble reconciling with what you already know to be true about God. In other words, your questions should be designed to improve and expand your theological paradigm. You say, I know this to be true about you, Lord, but then how do I reconcile this other thing with that truth that I'm already committed to, that I already know to be true? Look how Habakkuk does that in verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? In other words, Habakkuk is asking, I know you're holy, God. I know you are holy. Your eyes are so holy that you cannot look upon evil. But then how am I supposed to understand you being able to to watch and look upon the wicked Babylonians as, as they devour your people? He's trying to reconcile what he knows about God's holiness with what he's understanding God to be accomplishing through the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk asks, I know you are sovereign over all the affairs of the world. Nothing happens without your approval. How is it then that you approve of your people being made like fish of the sea and captured in the nets, the nets of the Babylonians? And Habakkuk is asking, I know you are the one and only eternal and everlasting God. Why is it then that the Babylonians worship their nets and idols? Why do their nets and idols receive the credit for the things that only you have done, holy God. Do you see what Habakkuk is doing in this third step? He's taking what he knows about the nature and character of God, and then he's asking the Lord, how do I reconcile the things that I'm witnessing and experiencing with what I know to be true about you? Then he waits for God to provide the answer. That's the fourth step. Waiting on God to provide the answer. But you'll notice from verse one of chapter two that waiting on God is not a passive thing. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. And I will answer when I am corrected. Some people think that waiting on God is just sitting around until he answers in some miraculous way. Um, They're waiting for a hand to appear and write the answer upon the wall. It's evident when a person is passively waiting because they complain about how long the Lord has been silent. You ask them what they've done about their challenging situation and they say, I pray to God about it. And so you reply, that's a great start. Then what did you do? And they stare back at you with an expression that says, what do you mean? I just told you, I I prayed to God about it and now I'm waiting for God to answer me. But he's not answering me. Notice how Habakkuk is not passive in waiting on God, but rather he's actively waiting upon God. He says that he will stand his watch by positioning himself on the rampart or the watchtower. In the ancient days, the the, the watchman on the watchtower was the person who was actively scouting out the area around the city, ready to blow the trumpet when he saw the enemies approaching. 
But the prophetic books of the Bible use the watchman on a watchtower in a metaphorical sense. For example, Jeremiah 6.17 uses the watchman as a metaphor for the prophets who had declared the warnings of God to the people of Judah. Speaking through Jeremiah, God says that he set a watchman over Judah, telling them to, to listen to the sound of the trumpet, but the people would not listen. Right? That's the metaphorical sense of it. Uh, the Lord says um, something very similar in Ezekiel 33, verse 7. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. You see the, you see the role of the watchman right here? You shall hear, the watchman shall hear a word from my mouth, God's mouth, and then warn the people of Israel for God. So prophetically speaking, the watchman is the person who hears the word from the mouth of God. So when Habakkuk says that he will take his stand as a watchman on a watchtower, watching to see what the Lord will say to him, he's describing the activity of searching for the Lord's answers to his questions. And so it is for you and me. Praying to God uh, asking him questions about the challenging situations is a great start. But then you need to set yourself as a watchman on a watchtower. In other words, you need to be actively looking for God's answers to your questions. You need to be surveying the land, looking, waiting for the Lord, actively waiting for the Lord to speak to you. And, and where should you be looking for the Lord to speak to you? In the Bible. God speaks to us through his written word. It contains everything you need for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that you, dear brothers and sisters, can be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or to put it slightly differently, the Bible contains everything you need to improve and perfect your theological paradigm. The Bible contains everything you need to, 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 to fine-tune your assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions so that you are able to accommodate every aspect of God's revealed truth. As I noted earlier, Habakkuk was ready to Im improve his theological paradigm. He indicated uh, at the end of verse 1 that he is actually expecting, he's expecting to receive correction from God. Now, some English Bible translations use the word reproof or rebuke, that, that, that he was waiting for God to reprove him or to rebuke him. Uh, I don't think that's the best translation because it implies that Habakkuk had sinned in asking God the questions that he asked in chapter 1. But there's absolutely no indication anywhere in the entire book of Habakkuk that God was displeased with Habakkuk's questions. Correction is the better translation because it shows how Habakkuk sought the Lord for answers, righteously sought the Lord for answers, and when the Lord responded to, to Habakkuk, he received answers to his questions or correction to his way of thinking. In that sense, Habakkuk was corrected. His theological paradigm was improved and expanded, corrected, in order to accommodate the additional truth that he had learned from God. Habakkuk has given us a model for dealing with the difficult and challenging circumstances in our lives. Where you have difficulty reconciling something 
with your theological paradigm, some experience, some proclaimed truth, God reveals something to you in the scriptures or you experience something in life and you're like, how does that fit with what I know about God? How does that fit with my paradigm? Then Habakkuk is showing us how we can respond to that. First, you pause. You pause and make sure your emotions are under control, which is to say that your tongue is under control. Second, you establish what you know about God to be true, what you know to be true about God's nature and his character. Third, you ask the Lord to help you understand the parts of the situation that you're having trouble reconciling with what you know to be true. And then fourth, you actively pursue his answers in the scriptures. You set yourself as a watchman on a watchtower, actively pursuing God's answers and waiting for him to reveal them to you. And beware, brothers and sisters, Beware of the temptation to not be honest with ourselves. Know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Know that you can stop your ears from hearing the truth that you don't want to hear. Know that you can deceitfully preserve and protect those portions of your theological paradigm that need to be improved, but you fear it will be too uncomfortable to improve, and so you you avoid it. Trust that the Lord's grace is sufficient for whatever challenges and difficulties will arise as he brings your assumptions, doctrines, theories, and opinions into greater conformity with his truth. You should never resist the truth. Rather, you should always pursue the truth because the truth will set you free. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.